Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Uncensored CMO. Now, if I were to ask you to think up a dream job, I wonder what it would be. I think for me, I'd probably want to be the global CMO of the world's number one toy brand, Lego. Well, fortunately for you and I, I have as my next guest, Julia Golden, who is doing that exact job. And I want to catch up with them and find out what is it like being paid to play? And actually, what role does play have in our lives and how can play help children learn, collaborate, uh, be more creative and ultimately be more successful and change the world we live in? This is a great conversation with somebody right at the top of her game who has got loads of experience and stories to bring. I know you're going to love it. This is my conversation with Julia Golden. Julia, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. I'm dying to know how on earth you got here, but maybe take us back to the beginning. Where did you come from and, and how did you get into this world of marketing in the first place? Well, I, I was born in the Soviet Union in Russia and I came to the States with my family, with my parents when I was in my teens. And I really wasn't prepared for any kind of career thinking because that sort of didn't exist in Russia and I was studying to be a pianist, so piano teacher. So I had no idea really what I wanted to do. But when I got into my kind of education, I, I had the sense that I liked many different things and I was, I didn't feel like I had a really big spike. And so, but what I really loved was psychology, understanding people, creativity, solving problems, but I also loved commercial side of things as well. And so for, I kind of fell into marketing because it was a perfect combination of art and science. And I'm still super passionate about exactly that, understanding people, figuring out how to create something amazing for them that brings them value and then how that turns into a really successful business. I love that description because it's funny. I had a similar thing to you that I, I was kind of creative and I love finance as well. I had a weird sort of kind of mix of those two things. And the marketing is not those kind of careers that's particularly well understood or, mar or marketed, I suppose, is it? But so what was your first marketing job and, and, and how did you go from there up to becoming a CMO? After business school, I worked at Quaker Oats and I launched things like low-fat granola bars, which were the trend at the time. And then after that, I really, that was sort of like learning the basics. And then I went to Coca-Cola and that was really kind of my real kind of big marketing academy of life, I would say, because I worked in so many different jobs there. I was in the global role. Then I was in market and regional roles in Europe. Um, then I was in Japan. And that was sort of like my career with Coke. And the, what was really interesting about Coke is that everybody always says, well, why do you have to market Coke? Everybody knows it. But just being ubiquitous doesn't mean that you're really meaningful. And so actually marketing on Coke was super interesting because it was really about how to make the brand special and unique and much bigger than just the drink. You know, every single time it encounters consumers and how to tap into the culture and the passion in order to be relevant and engaging at local levels as well. And that was really interesting working with different markets. And after that sort of marketing academy of Coke, I went to Revlon and I was the chief product and marketing officer there. And Revlon was a very different world because it was a world of cosmetics, highly driven by innovation, which I got a taste of it when I was in Japan, and really in need of sort of reigniting the brand that had tremendous history, but wasn't as relevant as engaging in the moment. So there was a lot of great work to be done on product ranges. We did a lot with nails. We did a lot of lips. We did a lot of color and really went back to the roots of what Revlon was all about with great campaigns. And then I had this really amazing opportunity to um, join the Lego group. 
it was quite daunting because, you know, when you join something that's really, really successful, you always have to ask the question of what, how you're going to really bring value. And I always sort of prided myself on being a change agent, and I wasn't sure whether the company had appetite for a lot of change. But it turned out that actually we were at the precipice of needing to make changes in order to hit another uh, stage of growth. And I was very lucky to be part of that journey and still am super enjoying it. Well, I can't wait to get into that because because it's one of those brands we all know. It's got amazing history and it's reinvented itself and it's it's modernized itself a lot, hasn't it? So I'd love to talk a bit more about that. Just before we do, you've done a lot of you know different roles globally and in different companies. What's the secret to being a successful CMO? I, I'm not sure whether there is a massive secret to this, but I think... There's probably a few things that I would pull out. I think one is to, it goes back to where I started, which is, you know, this kind of art and science. Why are you here? And it's, it is really about creating value, but it's about creating value for the consumer. It's creating value for the enterprise and it's creating value for the people who work you know, in the enterprise. I think one of the things for me has always been this, I've been very loyal to understanding or focused on understanding consumers, understanding what really makes them tick and pushing the brands to deliver and products to deliver, um, you know, beyond the expectation, to constantly surprise and delight, to drive innovation, and then being really mindful of how to turn it into a really, you know, value-creating business. So that was... It sounds like the basics, but I think sometimes we get lost in myriad of other things like digital and this and that and the other thing. But I think staying focused on why you're here and what it is that you uniquely do for the company, I think that's important. The other things, um, I'm very big on learning so and not going, um, forgive me, not listening to a lot of podcasts or reading a lot of books or going to a lot of conferences, but actually understanding what is changing in the business, what is changing in the lives of consumers and, and diving into it. Um, you know, if it's about technology, I will go and sit with engineers and understand how they actually code and how the tech works. If it's about digital, I'll do the same or, you know, whatever it may be. So learning, I'm learning what I know, pushing myself to learn different things, being in tune with the world. I think that also drives success. And then the last point is about leadership. I'm a very big believer in uh, one team and bringing different diverse I think in today's world, you can't be afraid of change, but you can't also become change for the sake of change. So that sort of balance of needing, understanding when you need change, being ahead of the curve, don't change when like the writing is on the wall that you have to change because that's always very painful. Be a bit ahead of the curve and understanding what's coming next. I think that's kind of what our jobs are all about. That's a lovely, that's a lovely concept, that isn't it? Because th there are some sort of eternal truths, aren't there, in marketing that have always been true, and then there are things we need to adapt. And understanding the difference between the two is, is I think, a really powerful skill. That makes a lot of sense. Um, I read that you won Adweek's first Brand Genius Lifetime Achievement. So congratulations. That's quite a title, isn't it? Yeah, yeah it's, it's a mouthful. <laughs> isn't it? What's the, you know, one of the things, you know, we often see, you know, tenure of a CMO is often quite short, isn't it? And, um, but, you know, you, you've led Lego for some time. What's the secret to staying on top of your game and longevity in that kind of role? You have to stay fresh. 
and you have to also be humble, you know, not sort of rely on past success, past year. I mean, I'm, I'm very lucky, you know, because we have, our consumers are super fickle, they're kids, they want innovation all the time. And just because I always say to myself and to my team, just because we were chosen and we are on the wish list last year doesn't mean we'll be on the wish list again this year. So you need to really work hard to constantly be, you know, exciting, engaging, relevant. Um, uh, so that that's one thing. Second thing is that we make mistakes. We have to be prepared to make mistakes if you want to take risks, if you want to try new things. So balancing and creating the right atmosphere to be able to actually learn from your mistakes, make mistakes, learn from your mistakes and embrace risk um, has been another really big thing. And then, you know, really being really focused on delivering value. We can do a lot of different things, but we've got to also remember what are the ultimate goals that we have, what the success really look like. So I think creating um, the right approaches and setting up the right team and ensuring that people are focused on the right things to continuously up our game, you know, that, that those have been like the important factors. You made an interesting point there about fickleness of the audience. You've you probably got the toughest consumer audience of anyone, isn't it? Because I, I know when I talk to my daughters and I might kind of mention something that I thought was in fashion, they go, oh, daddy, that's so last year. You know, you know, think, you know fashion's changed so quickly. How, you know, can you predict how they change or how do you kind of stay on top of the sort of trends that are happening all around you? You know, I, I think it's, it's some trends stay for a while and, and some, of course, you know, just come up and then they, you know, fizzle out. You have to be externally oriented. You know, I always say, like, we have to be super passionate about our consumers. And honestly, it is about really having your eyes open to the world and being willing to get into what, you know, your consumer is into. I'm lucky because I've got kids also, and so I can see what they're into. And when I see that they are suddenly you know, super into Formula One. I know Formula One is top of mind for them and I start investigating it. And I think it's kind of, it's things like that, that that happen in the world that you have to sort of see and suss out and understand how these trends are all coming together. Which ones are going to be the really meaningful ones? Which ones will stay there for a long time? Which ones will be, you know, in the moment, like your daughters say about fashion, yes, this year it's black and next year it's green, the next year it's pink, and then it's going to be blue or something else. And, you know, so so I think in general, it, it is really about understanding the world out there and understanding what kids are into and watching what they watch, you know, seeing what IPs they gravitate to, understanding what are the new, hot new games that they're playing, which movies really resonated with them. Um, so, yeah, we are very focused on passion points and understanding different passion points. And if there's one wish you always have is to predict what's going to happen in the future, you, you can't always predict no, what's going to happen in the future. It sounds fun trying that. I mean, you know, get understanding what kids are into and uh, you know, what drives them. I think it's very exciting. Um, something you're, you, as a, you're, you as a brand are well known for is purpose, of course. Talk to me about what your purpose is as, as a company or as a brand and how that kind of comes to life. Our purpose is very simple. We're here to become a global force for learning through play. We're here to inspire and develop the builders of tomorrow. And the idea is super simple. We know that when kids play, they learn. Play unlocks imagination, creativity, and they learn critical skills like problem solving, uh, like collaborating, communicating, 
And these are essential skills for their future. And we know that. And so our key focus, our number one priority is always to get into as many hands of kids as possible around the world to reach as many kids as possible um, to make sure that they benefit from really great play experiences during their childhood. What I find so fascinating about that is I think when I was growing up, you kind of had work and play and work and play were like separate things. You know, you learn through work and then play is sort of what you're allowed to do afterwards. But I love the fact that you're bringing learning into play and actually recognizing that actually playing is problem solving, isn't it? It's imagination, it's, it's collaboration, it's all those things, which I, I'd never thought about play in that kind of way before. But it is really, really true. Um, and it's not just true for kids. It's also true for adults, by the way. And we practice what we preach because we play at work also. We always talk about children being our role models. And I always sometimes ask the question of who is more creative, children or adults? And usually people would say, who is more creative? Kids. Yeah. And you think that because kids are more um, imaginative. They are... They can think outside the box. They can color outside the lines. They can imagine anything in their heads. It's much easier for them to fail. It's much easier for them to, to, to get up and keep going. Um, it's true. But at the end of the day, kids can imagine a lot of things, but they can't make them happen. Adults are the ones who actually make things happen. And if you actually look at what adults are able to create, there's a tremendous amount of creativity in the problem solving, finding new ways of doing things, bringing new things to market, etc. You need both types of creativity. The problem is that when we are, as adults, we lose a lot of our imagination because we don't give ourselves those moments where we can be actually in a fully relaxed and experimental mode. And that's what play unlocks. Play helps us to be curious, brave, just like children in a playground. And those are the kinds of values that we have in the Lego group. We talk about curiosity, bravery, focus as really important. But so for, for me, play is a way to unlock imagination, creativity, loosen up and allow yourself to come up with more creative ideas, more creative solutions. That does make sense. I mean, all my best ideas happen when I'm not working, you know, quote unquote, where I'm having a break, you know, and then, then the imagination starts to kind of join the dots. Does that mean then in your work you get to play as well? Yeah. You know, like I brought my um, business card because people always ask me, so is working at the Lego group as fun as it sounds? So I'll start with this. This is my business card. Brilliant. So for, so for everyone listening, um, Julia's got her name on a little Lego figure. Yeah, I don't know whether the camera can pick there this up. But, you know, when your business card is a minifig, you kind of have to play. Um, but yes, we do. So do you, get to, do you get to choose? You get to choose the colors and yeah, it hairstyle? Yeah, kind of looks like me, right? So we, at least once a year, we have a a play, like a global play day where we actually, literally everyone takes the full day to play and we engage all kinds of different activities together in all of the different places that we have um, where we are, you know, around the world. And um, that's an amazing opportunity for everyone, every single person to engage in play. But in my organization, we also have... Um, Fabulous Fridays once a month where we can play and do whatever, you know, would really like, you know, we're passionate about. We have creative booths that we use uh, for all of our designers and communication creatives, et cetera, to engage in coming up with ideas that are not necessarily part of their, you know, exact sort of like work uh, assignments. 
And these are the kinds of ways in which we can unlock play. But I start all of my quarter, quarterly meetings with, uh, you know, play. That's, that's, that's how we as a team can so also it, it listen. it is as good as people think it is. <laughs> I think it's important. I mean, working at the Lego group, yes. Um, I think it's really important. It also helps, you know, this kind of idea of collaboration and people, you know, coming together. And again, when you look at children on the playground or, you know, when they walk into their first day in kindergarten, they will learn how to be together. And caring so is sharing. So that's how you build relationships yeah. with people, isn't it? How you and trust so you, people. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so for us, it's an essential part of how we, um, how we work rather than like something you put to the side. I, think I met a, a very successful exec team of a, of a brand once and they committed to 20% of their time together would not be doing work. You know, they, they dedicated 20% of any agenda to doing something social, being together, playing or whatever sort of thing. And, it, it's, and that, they put that down to the reason for the success. I, I very much believe in that. I think it's important to build informal relationships. I think informal relationships help a lot. I also talked about one team. It's easy to be a team when everything is going great. It's much more difficult when you have conflict. So I wouldn't necessarily separate play and work. But sometimes solving your problems when you're walking around the lake or when you are visiting something or when you are, you know, engaged in some kind of a brick activity, for example, hands on bricks, building something. Let's talk about something that's difficult between us. Let's, you, 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 you get to a better conflict resolution, you know, versus sending long emails and, yeah, you know, nothing worse than digging emails, it out so. in the conference room. <laughs> Absolutely. I totally agree. You talked about product innovation earlier. I'd, I'd love to know, how do you come up with your next product idea? I, I, in my head, you've got this amazing playroom where it's all kind of the kids are coming up with the ideas. But, you know, how does innovation happen in Lego? There, there's a variety of different things, but it, it is not just sort of sitting and playing, you know, playing in, in the room with, a, with, with different... It starts with really understanding consumers. It starts with um, being passionate about understanding consumers, understanding who they're going after, what are their key passion points, what are they really into. So it's kind of starts at the concept stage. And then it is uh, sitting around and playing with different ideas around the right brief around the right understanding of what we're trying to hit. And then we go through kind of a stage process. We have, a, um, an we, we, we have different uh, teams in the organization. Some teams can work on innovation that is, you know, more within reach. So if you say, for example, you know, we know, for example, that this particular IP is super hot or this particular, you know, passion point is super hot, like, flower bouquet, for example, then we have designers that will work on, you know, how to actually innovate in the space. Some projects take a much longer time. So we have Creative Play Lab that's particularly dedicated on these more challenging projects. So for example, in 2020, we launched Lego Super Mario. It was really innovative because it has interactive technology inside the Amigo and you know, Luigi and Mario, and they communicate and you can compete and you can build your own course. But to get that technology to work takes a long time. So some of these kind of big ideas to turn them into reality will take a few years and we have teams working on that too. Um, so that's sort of how the, the process works. Some innovation is closer in, some innovation is further out. Some comes up, comes out of what I just talked about, like design boosts. Uh, where some amazing ideas, and they are developed within one week of designers coming together and working or anyone who wants to join it. Um, so, yeah. 
I like the balance between the long-term strategic things and the short-term sort of just coming up with an idea in a week. That's that's, that's quite cool. Now, you, you do a lot of collaborations as well, don't you? Star Wars movie or, you know, things like that. So what role do collaborating with other properties have? Because, it, it, I mean, it feels endless, the amount of possibilities that there are out there. You know, other properties are important in various spaces, whether it's movies, whether it's vehicles, whether it's games, for example, um, because there's no shortage of possibilities when it comes to the Lego brick. You can build many things with Lego bricks, but there's we always have um, our approach is always to think about where we can really add value to the property. So not just do yet another thing for property, you know, like, you know, just bring it to life in, in a Lego brick form if there's already many other ways in which the property is brought to life, but bring a unique experience to the property and to the people who are passionate about our property. So Lego Star Wars is like a unique experience in its own right. And there's actually a, a quite a large generation, probably a couple of generations that have discovered Star Wars through Lego Star Wars and not through Star Wars films because it was right in between you know, the the uh, uh, last episodes and the middle episodes, you know. So uh, my son fell into that, <laughs> you know. So he discovered Lego Star Wars through, and then the films came out, uh, discovered Star Wars through Lego Star Wars. So we try, we constantly try to look at how we bring, what unique experience we can bring to the property. So they are important, but we are choiceful also about which ones we, we actually focus on, collaborate with, and then we want to make these collaborations really meaningful. And the interesting thing about Lego Star Wars, that just, just a thought that occurred to me, is how it connects parents and children. So, you know, for me, I'd, I'd have got in through the films, but like you say, for your son, you got in through the, through the Lego, but then that, you've got something to connect you. So there's also something quite powerful about the sort of parent and child bond, isn't there, that playing together, you know, kind of facilitates. Yeah, and the Lego brick itself is that kind of... Um, um, you know, legacy as well, you know, where parents and children, I often hear them talk about parents, remember the sets they build, now they build the sets with the kids, sometimes they pass their bricks onto the kids and all the bricks, you know, they still connect. So it's kind of a rite of passage in its own right. But there are properties like that, and, and, that's, and there's also uh, some Lego experiences in particular that, that lend themselves to the sort of these kind of connection moments. Mm. Like we did a, we launched Manchester United football stadium. It happened to launch right in, in 2020 when everyone was at home. So I built it together with my husband, with my sons, and it was just a great experience. Brings people together, doesn't it? Absolutely. In, in a wonderful way. And it's accessible. That's the other thing about it is it, it it's, it, you know, it's not technical. Everyone can do it. Well, you can get very technical, but, you know, there's something for everyone, isn't it? Yeah. It's for any, anybody of any age, actually. Now, we were having a little look earlier on the System 1 database, weren't we, at some of the amazing advertising you're doing. Uh, you've produced a lot and, and, and very successfully. If you had to pick a favourite campaign that you, you've kind of created, what would, you, what, would your, what would your one be? In 2019, we launched our first ever, actually, global brand campaign, Rebuild the World. And since then, we launched a few different iterations, including our holiday ad with Katy Perry, which I know you tested it. and it tested really <laughs> well. But I would say that campaign in totality has been um, a real favorite for me because it is not about one particular product, but it communicates a really clear message about the importance of play, the importance of creativity. And I think it brings joy to a lot of 
faces a lot of people when they watch the campaign. The idea behind it is very good, isn't it, in terms of rebuilding your world? So it, it feels like it's got a very powerful idea sat at the heart of it. Yeah, absolutely. And then I always really enjoy things that we do that are not your typical advertising because I'm a big, again, believer in the fact that right now when to do things, you know, to really break through, you need to really break through and just do something unexpected. So just, you know, a few examples, we build a life-size Bugatti that could actually drive only 11 kilometers an hour, but it was built fully out of Technic. Uh, platform, including Technic Motors. Um, just this year, we had a Limon Peugeot model, also a Technic model, and to do communication campaign behind that one, we had a, a, a full-size Limon Peugeot that was modeled, that was built out of Technic bricks, but it was built during 24 mo- four hours in Limon during the race. Really? Yep. It, was, it was built in the 24 hours? Yeah, in the 24 hours. So you're racing against the you're cars racing. to build the model? Exactly. That's exactly. a clever idea. So oh. that, that was a lot of fun. We had a, you know, to, um, uh, to bring excitement to uh, Lego Flowers. We had a pop-up um, garden cafe in London. I think things like that, they also really resonate with people because it's something that's unexpected and it's something that only, I would say, only Lego can do. And I really love that. It does seep into culture, doesn't it? Because we, we, we all got a connection with the brand and experience of it and it sort of pops up in unexpected places which is brilliant uh, thinking about the future as well and obviously sustainability is on all our minds in terms of you know the next generation and how we're going to leave the planet in a better place how are you approaching that as a brand as a, as a big challenge for you know for the future they are very committed to sustainability efforts and um you know investing a lot um you know really focusing on really big things um reducing our carbon emissions we have pledged to reduce by 37% by 2032, um, by 50% in a a, a little bit longer distance future. Um, We're investing $1.4 billion just up to 2025. Now we are in the process of changing all of our prepacks to paper. So that's going to, it's already rolling out and it's going to be finished by 2025. And we're constantly looking for different ways in which we can create more sustainable sources for our materials. Uh, We already have plants from plants. So anything that you see that's green is already made out of a fully uh, sustainable sourced material. Uh, It's out of sugarcane. But we're also increasing the percentage of material that we source that's got mass balanced and and also working on segregated materials that we're constantly testing to make and just rolling into our full kind of system is what we call of all of the different elements and components that we have. So, you know, so it's a lot of investment to find the right materials, but also a lot of work in our own supply chain and with our partners to reduce carbon emissions. Wow. That's a big, big set of programs there by the sounds of it. It's a very big program, yes. And it's a very big focus for the company. Now, as as such a creative company, I wonder how much do you kind of generate yourself in terms of whether it's campaigns or innovation ideas? How much do you bring partners and agencies in? Because you strike me as as a company that's got a lot of creativity kind of built into the heart of it. We do. Um, Part of my organization is our own creative agency. So we do have a big communication agency that's in-house. But we do also work with partners and in several different ways. I mean, sometimes we choose to work with partners because they will bring certain capability even in developing some of the creative campaigns, but also to keep ourselves fresh and on our toes. So the agency sometimes chooses to actually bring in an external partner. So that's one area. The other area is when it comes to gaming, we do have games and we are developing um, 
uh, we have a big initiative. We're partnering up with Epic Games, the makers of Fortnite, to do something, you know, quite big in the metaverse that we're planning in the future. So we will partner with partners that have certain capabilities. And then when it comes to content creation, um, we work with a lot of very talented people in Hollywood. And, you know, obviously for, you know, I mentioned, for example, Lego Star Wars. So sometimes we will collaborate with Disney Company. They're great partners and they will create together with us Lego Star Wars specials. They're some of the most popular shows on on Disney Plus, but we also have Lego Indiana Jones or Jurassic World specials with the, that we've created with Universal, and obviously our movies. We've had uh, great partnerships to do that too. So, so it depends, but we always look for areas of expertise, and of course, there's a lot of external agencies that we collaborate with, um, also when it comes to insights and, you know. How do you yourself choose what to? put your energy into as well because like even what you've just described there is just a world of possibilities isn't it so how, how do you choose where you're going to focus your energy for the future yeah i you know i th- i think that's one of the really um very important skills to have like you have to be focused on the top priorities and you also have to build very strong teams so they can you know organizationally that can actually drive a lot of these initiatives so many of the things that i just mentioned i will not get deeply involved in, I, I always put my energy to make sure that the strategy is right, to make sure that we all align, we're all aligned on the direction. And then I will put my energy on the areas where I can really add a lot of value, you know, where help is needed, where it's a challenging task, where there's problems that need to be solved. And building a strong organization is essential. I have an amazing team and they drive a lot of really amazing work and they do it much better than if, you know, if I did it. But they know that I'm there and available for them for sparring, for providing some input or for helping to solve problems and creating that sort of open relationship with every single person that I work with. So they're not afraid, but actually want to come to me, not because they need me to sign off on something, but because they really want to work together and they benefit from the partnership. That's how I like to work. I think this is this is such a kind of key area for any new CMO or someone stepping into that role because you're used to sort of doing the work, aren't you, and, and delivering the project or creating the innovation or whatever, and then suddenly you're leading everyone else to do it and you haven't got time to be across everything. So how you manage your time? And, and lo- I love how you said as well, you know, employ people that can do stuff you can't. And that becomes essential, doesn't it? You need people that are experts in different areas that can, you know, manage projects, that kind of thing. It's a, I think it's a real hard skill. And a lot of, I've worked with a lot of uh, senior marketers or CMOs that have really struggled to make that differentiation between, I'm no longer the person doing now, I'm now the person leading. And I've got to think differently and, and guide and create the strategy. Yeah. So what be your, so if you had to sort of think, you know, if you were to wind the clock back and you're starting again and you're giving yourself some advice, what would be your top advice for someone embarking in a career in marketing wants to get to the top? I think it's a, I think it's a tough question, but I would say that I, I would be, I would give an advice to my younger self to be less sort of self-concerned, more confident and going for it. I would definitely reinforce the idea of trying new things and not being afraid to take risks. I think that worked really well for me, whether it's moving to different roles or whether it's going to, you know, to different locations and experiencing some of the tougher environments. I would definitely, you know, advise to be very open to learning. I think that's really important. 
That's really, I, I love that advice, actually. I, I found that in my, in kind of my journey. Early on, I felt I had to know all the answers before I could do the job. I've got, you know, I've got to get fully qualified before I do it. And you never really are, are you? You know, you're always learning something or having to say it's some sort of risk. Yeah, I think there's a, I think there's a balance that you need to strike on the one hand to be humble enough to recognize that you don't have all the answers, you never will have all the answers, and to be able to fail and recognize your own mistakes. Um, and on the other hand, to be sort of brave enough to actually go for things, not to be so afraid to fail, but also not to be so concerned about what people will think about you. Mm. I had to go through quite a bit of having to prove myself. And I, I think now we live in a world where you know, young people are much more self-confident, and women in particular, and I love that. But I think when you are trying to prove yourself, you're more internally focused than externally focused on delivering value. Um, so that's one really big aspect. And the other one is learning. I think sometimes also what prevents us from learning is we work too hard to prove our own point. You know, <laughs> I think David Ogilvy said, I just saw this phrase, which it's, it's, it's an old phrase, but I think it's very true that, they, you know, sometimes they use research um, like a drunkard uses a lamppost, yeah. <laughs> not for illumination, but for support. Yeah. I, I think that's the thing. Like when you are in front of a you know, senior audience, you don't want to be told, you know, you don't want to admit that you've made a mistake or that something might be wrong. So you really work hard to prove your point, to support supporting evidence we all sort of suffer from that that's so true but particularly in big organizations yeah it's like it you're more about all how does it look rather than is it right i mean i remember sitting through lots of meetings and I, at the end of it i thought we haven't actually discussed is this a good idea yeah. or not you and know, I, because I, everyone's trying to and i think sometimes saying listen i um you know i've made a mistake you're right this was not the right strategy or this is not the right approach I think that goes a very long way, also internally. So I would probably give myself that advice. Don't don't work so hard to always be right. I love I love the only mis- the only mistake point as well. I, I mean, because it, it can feel devastating to admit you've got something wrong. But I think when you've got you, you know you, you you get further on your career, you realise you're going to make mistakes. It happens, and it's not the worst thing in the world. And the best thing is to admit it and and show what you've learned. And that comes back to play, right? Because when you are in a, you know, when you are in a play environment, things can happen. You make mistakes all the time, right? But it's okay. We don't stress over that. We just move on. And you kind of almost expect that you will make mistakes and play. But somehow in a business environment, we think we constantly have to be perfect. And that's the wrong, that's the wrong mindset. Uh, I always also reinforce with the team, Adam Grant talked a lot about the sort of having a mindset of a scientist. And why? Because when scientists try to get somewhere, uh, they want to, they don't look on proving what is right. They actually try many different things to learn what's wrong. Because when you can discard everything that doesn't work, you will come to something that will. And we think completely differently. We come up with one idea and then we say, now that's the one I'm betting on. Okay, so now it has to work. And and that's why... I, I think I know exactly the experiment you're talking about as well because they, they, they were looking at startups, weren't they? And they had a, a cell where it was just what they thought was right from what they were trying to achieve. And then they had other, another group that just went on the data, basically went on what had been proven to work or not work. And the, the ones that went on the evidence were wildly successful yeah. and the other ones weren't. 
And it's that humility, isn't it, to know I'm going to let the data tell me and I'm going to be open to being proven wrong and, you know. Yeah, and, and I, I work with a lot of engineers because we work in, you know, when you start to develop technical solutions and their approach is very different because their approach is always to assume that things are not going to work and to build enough time to test different approaches in order to get to the right one. And sometimes when we are developing products, we don't do that and we should. And when we're developing campaigns, we don't do it, but we should. We should not assume that everything that we designed will just work. Well, that's actually a really important point in terms of because obviously we, with marketing, part of the job is actually selling ideas into the organisation to make them happen. When you're in the engineering department or the, or the factory, you can you, you can precisely say how many minutes or hours it will take and how much energy gets used up and how many shifts are going to take place. But with marketing, it's a lot less precise than that. So how do you kind of get business to buy into some of your ideas and plans? I personally don't like to oversell because I think that's doing business with ourselves and it's not good business because overselling, you know, is not good. So I really want to know that something is going to work. Um, and I want to provide the right understanding. I want to build the right understanding in my organization, um, you know, on why it's going to work. And so I, I don't like the word selling. I don't use it. I don't like using it internally. I never sort of say, how do I sell this idea to the CEO? Never. But I am very much um, open to the fact that, of course, people are not all subject matter experts. So you need to be able to explain why you believe something is going to work. And I am always, I always like and reinforce having fully honest and transparent conversations to be able to say, we know this is going to work because we tested it and this is how the test results have done. This we have not tested, but we think it's going to work because we've done something like this now for three years and it's worked really well. And this is the evidence that we have. I think that's fine. So I'm always quite transparent and I always also try to understand what my audience knows, doesn't know, what they need to know. So, you know, sometimes when, you know, we work very closely with our team and operations, for example, because we manufacture um, everything in-house, but explaining to them why we want to go after certain things, why some things are more difficult than other things. I think having these kind of honest, transparent conversations, they're super important. You reminded me of something, actually. I think one of the best bits of advice I've ever read was, I think it was great by choice in, in that book, where they talked about successful companies take lots of small risks, but then they work out which one works and then they double down on it sort of thing. I think they called it like fire bullets and then work out which bullet hit the target and then load the cannon sort of thing. And the idea that you can constantly experiment and then get the data back and then, you know, then then make a decision what you're going to double down on sort of thing. You know, a bit like the scientist taking a scientific approach rather than just we're going to bet on this without the evidence. I think there's a combination. I think that we would all be so lucky if we could just know that exactly that everything we've bet on yeah. is going to work. I think sometimes you have to get out there. You don't have the time to test everything. You have to get out there and see whether it works or not. And sometimes you got to have the intuition and the, you know, the belief that something is going to work, but then give it enough time. Oh, time is so key, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. yeah. We have this like cycle of like, we launch it. If it doesn't work immediately, we're on to the next thing. And then, you know, so, yeah, but some but things just do take time. Yeah, that's human psychology. But I think, you know, it's, it's fair to say that a lot of things that are the biggest innovations have also started somewhere where they didn't necessarily work. And then it took time to iterate and get it to absolutely the right level. Some things hit immediately and some things don't. And some you need to be able to say, 
you know, this is never going to work or say, no, this might work, but let's just try to go a different way. So it depends. Um, what my I see my role to be is to create enough room in their portfolio of things that we do from products to marketing campaigns, et cetera, to be able to afford some of these things that don't work so we can take some risks and to be able to also afford some things that will take longer. And that means that you have to have a pipeline of enough things that you can really, you know, Balancing believe in. Balancing long and short is so important, isn't it? Yeah. You're absolutely right. Because it, the things that take time you need to set in motion and then do the sort of more tactical things that are going to keep you going in the, in the short term until that succeeds. Um, maybe one question to end on, just a, maybe a slightly challenging question. But in if you could pick one thing that you're learning at the moment that you think will be really important in the future as a marketer to, to keep yourself, you know, at the top of your game, what would that thing be? Well, I think one thing that we should, of course, think about is generative AI. I think it's going to be, I actually feel that it's going to, first and foremost, offer a lot of opportunity for us to um, free up and enable a lot of different people in the organization, whether it's creatives, whether it's designers, whether it's just everyone, you know, in terms of how we work. So there's just so many tremendous possibilities that generative AI represents. So that's one thing that I think is going to change significantly how we do things. Uh, can I just quickly ask you, have you launched anything yet that's been generated by AI? nothing that's like a product that's been generated by AI, but we are, we are using AI already, of course, a lot in various ways across the company. But no product yet has come out just from the machine. Yes. There's still all the products for anyone who's so listening. Our jobs are okay for the moment. We're they okay are, the moment. Yeah. I don't think it's going to take jobs away, but I think yeah. it's going to push the level of creativity up. So I think that's, that, that's one thing that is really important. And then the other area that for me is, is very interesting is children, how children will develop and the sh how they will shape the future of this world. I think this new generation will surprise us, I hope in a very positive way. But because I see um, children really having a lot more engagement in society and a lot more responsibility from a younger age to make sure that we have a healthy and inclusive world and I, I'm really looking forward to the solutions they're going to bring. And from that perspective, I always think about how the role that we can play to enable them. That's so interesting. How optimistic are you in the future? Children are my role models, so I'm super optimistic. I love that. I love that. Because it, 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 with the media today, it can feel quite doom and gloom, can't it? Like you would never broken. ask a child whether they're an and optimist or a pessimist. You wouldn't, would you? I know. And yet when you look at history... Humans have always invented, recreated, developed, improved over time. So we've got a good track record. I'm, I'm, I'm a huge believer in human ability to create a better future, to create solutions, um, positive solutions. So I'm betting on this new generation. Well, I think that's the perfect place to end, isn't it? End on a high, as they say. Julia, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the episode of the Uncensored CMO there with Julia Golden, the CMO for Lego. I hope you enjoyed that. It was a lot of fun and I learned a lot about the power of play. In fact, I'm thinking about going and doing a bit more play myself now um, after listening to her, truly inspired as I was. Anyway, if you'd like to uh, hear more episodes from me, you can do. Just hit the subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you're watching on YouTube, hit subscribe there too. And to follow me, I'm over on Twitter at Uncensored CMO or on LinkedIn where I'm under my own name, John Evans. It's been great having you with me. Thank you so much. I'll see you next time.